Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Izzy. Let me just read again verse 4, and I'll pray. Verse 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Fathers, we come to this bit of your word. Thank you that we can know it it was written for us, us the church, to teach us, to encourage us, to help us endure and persevere with hope. And we pray, please, that your word would stir up and strengthen that hope in us this morning. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Last Sunday was our World Focus Sunday, but I want this Sunday and next to continue to think about um, world mission and our part in it. How, as a church, we can share more God's concern that our world would know that bread of life we were thinking about last time. So, this week and next, we're going to look at one chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 15, which at the heart of it, as we'll see next time, Paul speaks of his his great ambition, his God-given calling to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, wherever Christ is not known. That is the passion that fuels and drives this chapter, and Paul is calling the church in Rome to share in that passion, partly, as we'll see next time, by partnering with him and supporting him in his work, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But partly, he says, how we relate to each other in the church can serve that purpose of bringing people from all nations to glorify God. When we think about our 
the part we might play in world mission. We tend to think of how we should, yes, pray, how we should give, how some of us maybe should go, and how here in Oxford we should seek to share the gospel. Mission starts at home. Well, yes, but actually not just in Oxford, Paul is saying. It, it begins, in a sense, here in church at St. Ebbs. How we live together, how we treat each other, how we rub along despite our differences, that matters, Paul says, for the sake of God's great plan to draw all nations, all peoples, with all their differences together to know him and to honor him. That hope he wants to fill our hearts and to shape our lives, not least shape our life together, he's saying here, our life together in church. It's a chapter I've read lots of times, but I've never preached on, never looked particularly closely at, but it is a rather wonderful chapter and very practical. It's got lots of good things for us to learn. And our chunk this morning, 1 to 13, breaks naturally into two halves. Each half begins with an exhortation. You see it in verse 1 and then another one in verse 7. And that is then grounded in the example of Christ and then the scriptures. And each half then ends with a prayer. Uh, verses 5 and 6 and uh, verse 13. Lovely prayers, both of them. And I hope they will become more and more our prayers as we take this word to heart. So two halves, two headings, we'll, we'll put them under. Serve one another and accept one another. Okay, so first, verses 1 to 6, serve one another. It's not quite the, the sort of words that Paul uses. Let me read from verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. And Paul talks about the strong and the weak. He's not talking about the strong in faith and the sort of spiritually weak and, and, and rather feeble. It's there's two categories of people he's been talking about in the previous chapter, chapter 14. He's talking really about people's consciences. The strong are those who are confident in their freedom in Christ. They're not fussed about eating meat that might have been offered to an idol. They don't feel bound in their conscience by strict Sabbath observance and other kinds of religious scruples. They're the strong, the weak. The weak are those who might be very strong in faith, but their consciences are tender about these things. Those things don't feel right for them. Perhaps most of them were Jews formerly, and the, the scruples they had lived by for so long, as you like, still had a hold over them. And Paul's already said that uh, people shouldn't go against their conscience and we should respect each other's conscience. But now he says, verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. He doesn't mean, I think, by that, try not to be irritated by other people in the church. You have these sort of tender consciences and um, all these scruples. Our translation says bear with, but literally it just says bear, carry if you like, carry the weaknesses of the weak is what it says literally. 
He's saying, use your strength to help the weak with the burdens they carry because of their rather tender consciences. Help them out. Help them to follow Christ. Um, So he's telling the strong, don't just enjoy your freedom, please yourself, but rather, verse 2, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Now, I think at times that might mean helping the weak see that their consciences are overly sensitive. There's a danger of the weak holding a church to ransom. I'm the weaker brother, so you must do exactly what I want, um, could be a line. But we mustn't play that game. Rather, Paul's point is instead of thinking, each of us, what do I want? What helps me most? Each of us is to think, what, what would help others? What would encourage them more? What would help build them up in their faith? That is to be the attitude he's calling us to do. I've sort of struggled to think of what kinds of scruples, what weak and strong might mean for us. I wasn't quite sure. But I think that attitude is one we can apply in all kinds of ways. An obvious example might be our attitude to the kinds of songs we sing. We're going to have different tastes. Not to be thinking what helps me. What might help others? What could, how could I sing this to, to build others up? Another thing I thought of was just one of the Ukrainian translation that Luba does week by week. It is lovely to have Ukrainian brothers and sisters here with us week by week. And I'm so grateful for Luba. You can't translate this bit, but I am grateful <laughs> for you. Um, the hard work it must be, how it must affect you being able to engage in the service. The cost it is for you. And wonderfully, none of you have said this to me, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of you at times have thought, why do I have to have all that muttering in the background? Um, can't they keep a voice down? And uh, well, this isn't helping me, it's distracting me. Now that's an example, there might be a whole host of other examples, but Paul's saying that is not to be how we think. We're to think always, what will help others? What would encourage them? Build them up, not just what I want. And Paul goes on to appeal to the example of Christ. Verse 3, he says, Even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. He's saying, look at Jesus. He, he quotes from a psalm, Psalm 69, speaking of the suffering of a righteous man, but a number of times in the New Testament, the writers say very clearly, it points forward to Jesus Paul's saying, think how Christ suffered for you. Think of the sacrifices he made for you. And doesn't that make any sacrifices we might have to make for each other seem rather puny and pathetic? And then almost in parenthesis, because he's just quoted from a psalm, he says, verse 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures, the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. It's not going to be easy to live this way. But he says, that's why we need the scriptures to teach us, to help us, to encourage us. Whenever the oldest person in the country or the world reaches their next birthday, it usually makes the news, and some reporter will turn up to this 115-year-old, wherever they are, old they are, and say, what's your secret? 
how have you managed to live this long? And they tell us it's kippers for breakfast or eight cups of tea or ballroom dancing or something is the secret. If we were to ask a, a, a Christian, how do you keep going? If we ask some here who've walked the Christian walk for many more years than many of us, how have you kept going in the Christian life? In one sense, of course, the answer is only by the grace of God, isn't it? But I think a number, if we were to ask them, would say, the Bible, the Bible. That is what has fed me and encouraged me, taught me to keep going, helped me to persevere. And that's true. That's, what it, that's the gift it is to all of us. And as we read our Bibles on our own, this is to be our attitude. This was written for me, to teach me, to encourage me to keep going with hope. So let me now read it with that attitude. And then Paul prays, verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, not least through the scriptures, as he's just said, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had. You know, not pleasing ourselves, not thinking what will help me, what will serve me and my, my needs, but the attitude of mind that Christ had, which says what will help others, what would build others up, what would be for their good. May that be your attitude. Why, verse 6, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not sort of unity for its own sake. It's not unity because it's always nicer if we all get along together. No, Paul's saying it, it's unity above all for God's sake. His great plan and purpose is to bring people together with all their differences in united praise of him. That's what the Bible says. It's not just that he wants each of us to praise him a bit more. His longing is that together, together with one mind and one voice, we would glorify him. Not agreeing on everything, they'll be weak and strong. But as we serve one another, we would more and more be as one. It's unity for the sake of worship, unity for the sake of mission, as we see, because that's what reflects God's great purpose and plan for his world. So serve one another, and then secondly, accept one another. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring Praise to God. I guess all of us at times have felt we, we don't quite fit, don't really belong. Sometimes we don't feel accepted in different situations. And sometimes that reflects more what's going on in our own hearts than how other people are behaving towards us. But we've all felt it. Paul would say church is the one place we should not feel like that because of how Christ has accepted us. Sure, there are some here who maybe aren't really sure that Christ does accept us. Maybe deep down you feel deeply unacceptable. That's what we tell ourselves. But the gospel tells us a very different truth. 
that Christ accepts us, welcomes us, despite our sin, our failings, our mess and muddle. And he doesn't accept us reluctantly or coolly or dutifully or half-heartedly. Christ accepts us as no one in this world has ever accepted us. Without reserve, with a full heart, with great joy, complete acceptance. That's what the gospel speaks of, isn't it? That's how he accepts us. And Paul would say a good test of the degree to which we've grasped that truth of how Christ accepts us is do we actually accept one another in the same way? In a large church, I guess we can look around, there'll be some we accept and welcome very easily. And probably, I think, rightly I hope in a sense, We'll, there'll be look, we'll look around, and there'll be some we find a little bit harder to do, because I hope we're all different. There may be there are some, as we come in, we think we'd choose not to sit next to them. Or there's some people we think, I probably wouldn't invite them over uh, to our house. Maybe some people we'd find rather difficult if they were to join our small group. In the church in Rome... It seems race was a significant issue, Jew and Gentile. For us, I would guess, it's, it's more likely to be a whole host of, of other kinds of differences that matter to us. It may just be different ages or different life situations, different personalities, different backgrounds that just make us a little bit slower to welcome others as we should to truly accept as Christ has accepted us. And we need all of us to repent of that because it's utterly at odds with the gospel. Actually, a little bit later, we're going to be sharing Holy Communion. And I often say, leading communion, this is a meal especially for Christians. And if you're not a Christian, it's lovely that you're here, genuinely lovely that you're here. But to share in the bread and wine when you're not yourself trusting Christ would be saying something that isn't yet true and discourage you from doing so. But last time we had communion, someone came up to me afterwards and said, shouldn't we also say, if you're not right with someone here, a brother or sister, if you've got a grudge against them, a resentment, you're not accepting someone for some reason, the same is true. To take the bread and the wine would be saying something that isn't true. And we shouldn't until we've put things right with each other. And that does need saying, I think, from time to time. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Again, notice the purpose, like in verse 6, is praise to God. And he goes on to say that that, if you like, is God's great plan in all of history to... Bring people to the praise of him. He says, verse 8, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. That means to sort of demonstrate God's truthfulness, his faithfulness, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
See, that's the promise God had made to Abraham, the first patriarch, that God would bless him and his family, but also that one day through him, through his family, the whole world would again know and enjoy his blessing. And Paul's saying Jesus came to fulfill those promises, to fulfill all his promises to Israel, and to fulfill that ultimate bigger purpose of showing mercy to the whole world. And again, he turns to the Old Testament scriptures to make his point. This time he quotes from every part of the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings, to sort of make the point that this is the promise that runs through the whole of the Old Testament. This is the great hope of scripture, that God one day will be praised among the nations, by all nations. So that's what he says. That's what will happen. I'll, I'll praise you among the Gentiles. And then the next quote, the, the nations themselves will join in that praise. All nations will extol him. Then that final quote, because in the coming of Jesus, the, the root of Jesse that springs up, God's king has now come. The one under his rule, the whole world, is going to put their hope. That has always been God's ultimate plan and purpose, Paul says, to gather people from among every nation on the planet with all their differences of culture and language and everything else and unite them, bring them together under the rule of Christ to live in praise of him, to enjoy his blessing. That might sound rather self-serving of God to want everyone to praise him. Of course, it's, it's not self-serving. It's a mark of his grace. He wants to bring us to know him as he is, the one who is alone worthy of our praise, to know his love and goodness and grace. That exhortation back in verse 7, except one another, might have sounded all rather sort of inward-focused. Not much to do with church mission, uh, maybe, you might say. But for Paul, he's saying it's, it's part of how we line up with God's great plan for his world. It's how we line up with this hope of one day all peoples living together with one voice and heart praising him. Well, we've got to do that more and more in church, he's saying, in our life together. And again, he closes with a prayer. It's a lovely prayer. Verse 13, that's what I've been praying for a number of people this week, praying for myself. Verse 13, look at that. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's striking because I think I'd probably have said overflow with joy by the power of the Holy Spirit or something like that. But Paul puts particular emphasis on hope. You might say, why is he doing that? Well, I take it he's talking about this hope of one day all peoples being gathered in praise of him. That countless multitude that John describes in Revelation 7. People from every nation and tribe and language and tongue gathered around the throne. Our broken, fractured world at last united and reconciled. 
And he's saying that is the hope. He wants to grip our hearts and to shape our lives. We're to overflow with hope. And you might say, well, what does that look like exactly, to overflow with hope? I mean, if you've talked about a church that was overflowing with joy or love or prayerfulness, we can kind of imagine what a church like that might look like. What does a church look like? What would it look like for us at St. Ebbs to overflow with hope? And I think Paul would say, if this hope did grip our hearts, well, how would it show? It means we'd be endeavoring to serve one another. Not please ourselves, get what we want, but doing all we can to help others build each other's up, that with one heart and voice we might glorify him. It would show itself by being a church where we accept one another as Christ has accepted us. Perhaps taking deliberate effort in the, the sort of crowd there is here, particularly to welcome those who are different from us, so that a bit more we can mirror this great plan of God to gather all peoples. We can reflect the welcome that Christ has shown to us as we line up with God's great mission for the world let's have a moment of quiet maybe just sit in the, in the quiet pause to think are there ways I need better to serve others accept others are there things I need to repent of ways I need to change and then I'll lead us in a prayer but a moment of quiet Let me pray Paul's prayer. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him so that we might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.